Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm I'm well, thank you. I'm well. the the uh, The big winds have died down here. I've uh, repaired some of the wreckage on my balcony, and uh, yeah, things have calmed. You know, in that really uh, intense winds that we, you've got sort of a different sort of thing happening where you are, but you know what I mean. It just aggravates mm. everything. And it's kind of a, a, a calming after some sort of um, kind of large argument that you didn't even know you were part of. And yeah. you're just glad that everyone's kind of gone home quietly and everything's, you know, back to normal. It truly is amazing how we are creatures of our environment. We tend to think that everything comes from the inside and that we can manifest our own realities from from you know just from our the powers of our minds alone so if you want to be happy then just think about being happy really really hard and that's only part of it and if you're in an environment where the wind is screaming in your ear all the time uh (laughs) it's going to be almost impossible to keep a sunny disposition you know when something's hitting you in the face as you leave your apartment um here it's been a bit gloomy. It was supposed to rain a lot more than it did, but it's been drizzling today. And um, yeah, it's uh, talking about how these things affect mood. It's begun to affect my mood a little bit. I've been a little grouchy. Of course, that's not helped by the fact that I I left my car unlocked last night and somebody opened my car and took the cash from the console and threw, oh, no. threw, threw my debit card into the tall grass. I don't know why they didn't keep the debit card. I don't know why they threw it into the grass. That seems like adding insult to injury. But they didn't take anything else from the car, thank goodness. It seems to me like it was probably just a drunk or high transient who figured they'd try to make a quick few bucks. And, you know, let, let's see if this guy's dumb enough to have left his car completely unlocked. And, you know, I'm up with the baby all night. So I was sitting by the front door and we have these bugs who go on these wild kamikaze runs straight at our front door. So it kind of almost sounds like hail hitting the door (laughs) sporadically, just like thunk, thunk, thunk. But one of those thunks, I remember last night thinking, that sounds like my car door shutting. And then I thought, no, no, that's crazy. I'm imagining things and sort of went back to feeding Gus his bottle but I should have trusted those instincts. Of course, I don't know what I would have done. I have a baseball bat, but you know, what am I going to do? Chase someone down the street over ten dollars? I'm not sure if I would have done that. Who am I kidding? Yes, I would have chased them for my. T- for t- yeah, <laughs> for no. $10. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure you would have. I'm mean. trying to pretend like I'm some sort of civilized person. That's. I I'm really I, I well I'm pleased on on two fronts. Um, one, I, I, I'm, I, I'm glad that you're thinking that it, it was a human uh, neighbor and not that possum that was, <laughs> you know, harassing your, your, your front porch area and, uh-huh. and you know, kind of hanging out for a beer earlier. Uh-huh. I don't know if listeners remember that, but uh, I had a vivid picture of that possum because they're, they're so crazy looking. But I'm also glad to hear that you don't have plans uh, to... Uh, camp out under your car on, um, you know, <laughs> thinking that someone will come back. With because, grease paint uh, on and a, and a Bowie knife, just, you know, well, cut like Rambo you know, style. 
when I uh, after I finished college, we uh, my girlfriend and I moved back to the Bay Area, at, and we were just ill prepared. You know, it the, the whole environment had really cranked up many notches. We were so underfunded. We were living in a really awful situation, a really tiny apartment for an enormous amount of money with mold and ants. But crime, just constant, you know, not necessarily huge crime, although there was a murder and there was a rape and uh, there was a, a homeless guy found dead in the car. And I happened to be the person to to find him. Um, but the main thing was the car, our car got broken into five times right out in front of, you know, the apartment. And it just, I just got to the point where I was so angry. I thought, you know, I am, I'm going to just camp out under the car Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I'm going to give it three nights. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought there's a chance I may catch someone. And that we knew there was nothing to steal at that point. And the wind, uh, the last time I just thought, I'm not even going to repair the window, you know, the hell with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't do that because um, I thought, look, that's just a bit much. But, uh, but there is something about the violation yeah. of when you, when you get broken into. It's just that little reminder, you know. I, I really understand that. I think you're, you're coping with that uh, you know, pretty well. Um, yeah, there was a friend of mine who had his house broken into and it really affected him to the point where he installed a bunch of security cameras, but his violation was a bit more. So he In his bedroom, they had a window above their bed and the, uh, the burglar uh, opened that window and put his muddy boot on their bed. And he told me that the, the image of that boot print, you know, on their bed... More so than the jewelry the guy stole or the the cash that he took, but that that image of the boot print on the bed was so violating that he they had to throw the bed out and get a new one. Yeah, oh, and I get man, that. I get, I get that. that. I get that. I can see that at like a film director, you know. And uh, one of our really devoted listeners, who's just a tremendous uh, source of interesting comments and thoughts, and uh, Diane Karajanakis in Sacramento. Um, she's in a lovely place now that's much more secure, but there was a break-in um, at where she was living before, which kind of, um, you know, was an uh, incentive to, to move from there. Um, but her description of that, the, the violation, it wasn't, you know, some sort of loss of property. And she certainly wasn't sort of saying that, you know, there was no physical harm because it, it, it happened when uh, she and uh, her roommate were gone. Um, but that sense of just, ugh, mm-hmm. and the idea of a boot print, I mean, in some ways, that's such an innocent, you know, sign of humanity. You know, that's Robinson Crusoe's, you know, mark mm-hmm. on the beach. That's something that we all leave, you know. Mm-hmm. But in that context, that's a nasty thing. I, I really feel that very viscerally. When you, when you said that, I saw it mm-hmm. and instantly an image in my mind. And yeah. I'd have that bed out of there too, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you're just you're you're down about a thousand bucks because you got to get a new mattress at that point, new sheets, yeah, the whole yeah. nine yards. But um, it, hey, part of that's a magical solution, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. I think that the people understand the psychology of that, but I I don't think you. I think that is the way to go magically. Is is just to say, no, look, I, I'm I'm gonna that bed's gone. It it, it it's contaminated now. 
It reminds me of a story that I read probably 15 or 16 years ago that may have been an urban legend, but it's always stuck with me. And it was about a person who would break into homes while families were asleep. And this was men and women. <clears throat> and people would wake up and he would just be tickling their feet. And then he would run away. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that if that happened to me, I might go psychotic. I'm, I might just lose it. Like, what, what was, why was he doing that? Yeah. Well, look, that's a good way to get shot, isn't it? It um, is, especially in Oklahoma. Especially in Oklahoma. Uh, well, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I wouldn't be doing that around here. But let me, uh, before we leave this topic, let me give you a happy uh, look. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on a show before, but whoever these kids were, I really uh, admire them. And um, there were a series of break-ins in, in my community. And the odd thing was nothing appeared to be stolen. And it took a while for the news to get around and for, you know, neighbors to talk to neighbors and for people, you know, to connect. But one thing that did turn out, it was three boys in the end, kind of art criminals. The people whose houses they broke into would pick up their TV remotes and try to turn on their TV and nothing would happen. And they'd go, oh, this is kind of frustrating. I really wanted to watch that game or the show. And then they started looking down at the remote and go, wait a minute, that's not my old remote. Mm. That's a different remote. And that's what these kids had been doing. <laughs> oh been my goodness. Exchange, they'd been exchanging the remotes. And I just, I, part of me just kind of thinks that's beautiful. That is yeah. a beautiful metaphor uh -huh. for what, you know, sort of art delinquent artists should be doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're gonna if you're going to do that at all, at least make it fun like that, if yeah. not mildly frustrating. Well, I mean, on that note, Chris, um, what did you want to talk about today? Okay. Um, I think our goal is to bring to a head and a conclusion. Uh, in some sort of satisfying way, the discussion we've been having over the last two episodes about the cult of celebrity and what that means today, maybe some forward looking about where that's going. But the thought I've been having, and this is sort of a, a rough framework to maybe bring us up to date, it seems to me that the idea of celebrity goes far back in time to the notion of gods and divine figures, magical beings from the cultural depths, the collective unconscious, as Jung might say, and a forward trajectory to real cultural heroes. We'd mentioned, say, Alexander the Great, for instance. Um, so we move from gods and divinities and mythic figures to cultural leaders of various kinds, whether they be military or artists, for instance. We mentioned Jenny Lind, the first uh, superstar artist, the Swedish nightingale that P.T. Barnum brought to America in 1849. Then we move into an era of stars, entertainment stars. We're now in the modern era, 
And we talked about people like Bing Crosby, uh, Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe. Um, and all of those people, I think we would say, had a sense of, of star stature. There was something in stardom. Um, I mean, I can imagine people in small towns in Oklahoma going to see the movies and just being blown away, you know, by, mm-hmm. you know, Ingrid Bergman and, and, and you know, Humphrey Bogart. And, and they did seem larger than life. And then we move into the era of celebrity as people who are famous for being famous. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a kind of degradation. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think we can say that we've degraded further with the idea of uh, social media influencers. And I'm, I'm just stunned how many of these people who are making squillions of dollars or so they claim that I have no idea about. And I know that I'm not in the demographic market. But when I look at that trajectory, which is really a decaying orbit, mm-hmm. it's a sad, you know, it, it isn't a trajectory in a good sense. It, it's really just a very, very steep uh, decline and fall, yeah. like something falling out of the sky. Uh, it makes me think of how the sacred hallucinogenic psychedelic uh, traditions of indigenous people around the world has in the modern era become things like booze, meth, cigarettes, you know, Mm -hmm. things that are anything but sacred. You know, they're, they're not even secular anymore. They're just crass commercial degradations of something that was pretty wonderful and special and rare, you know? So I think rare might be one uh, word to come up with for, for uh, this episode to look at why we have so many more celebrities and does that necessitate a kind of degradation, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that might be a good point to kick off with. Um, and then I have an actual uh, real sort of story that this just reminded me of once I started thinking about things falling out of the sky and, uh, but I might save that to later and just turn it back over to you and just ask, well, what do you think of that as a, as a roundup of we start with a sacred idea mm-hmm. of, of celebrity being almost mm-hmm. godlike, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we move steadily down to the level of a TikTok influencer today. That sounds great. That sounds perfect. I could start off by relating a very quick story. My mother has a picture of me when I'm about three or four years old. So this was taken in 1989, 1990, something like that. And I'm standing next to one of my heroes, and I look very nervous to to be meeting this figure and shaking their hand. And the, the celebrity who I'm meeting is a person in a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles costume. Uh, (laughs) so it reminds me when you mention the mythic uh sacred there was there was something about my obsession with the teenage mutant ninja turtles that bordered on that when christmas morning would come and my mother would have all of these action figures wrapped in paper and these guys became you know, my little totem, 
I think people often forget what these mythic worlds can mean to a child, and I have no idea why a, <clears throat> you know, why anthropomorphic turtles clicked with the generation like it did with mine. But um, that to me, and I'm, I'm in this case, I'm, I'm not trying to overstate this or be silly. That was a feeling of, of sacredness. Of course, I can't remember that actual meeting because I was too young. But, um, but you can see it written all over my face. I understand that perfectly. And I think that's a great way to open up this episode because it instantly uh, sparked in my mind one a point that we talked about uh, in, in the last episode of, you know, the first time for everyone, you know, and I mentioned about being the first white person seen in a remote village uh, on a volcanic island out in the middle of, of the Pacific. And the fact that it surprised me, you know, that I thought, well, you know, from my knowledge, you know, they had been visited by ships and, you know, airplanes and there had been a war you know, a pretty major world war fought there. But the point was that, that young children hadn't had that experience. For, for, for them, I was new. I was the first time. And I wonder if this sense of, because I can, I can just see you, you know, next to some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, mm -hmm. and I hear that theme song, which is so catchy, um, I wonder if part of, of where celebrity has moved to in, in relatively recent times, maybe since, you know, serious marketing via television and uh, primarily television, the 1960s got started. We started to create a sense of like, let's, let's hit the kids when they have that sense of magic and enchantment. And, um, I mean, I, I have a picture in my mind of about the same age and I'm, you know, up against a, a poster for Johnny quest, which was a Hanna-Barbera, mm -hmm. you know, action. It was the first action realistic cartoon and it was, you know, adventure and crazy stuff, death rays and mummies and, you know, secret laboratories underwater. But there was a, a decoder ring giveaway for PF Flyers uh, shoes, the shoes that make you run faster and jump higher, as every one of my generation knows. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I mean, that's the Homeric epithet around PF Flyers. You know, that's, you know, they, they do. They, they're the shoes that make you run faster and jump higher. There's no mm -hmm. question about that. That's not up for debate. Correct. And there was no sense of the contamination of my heroes and this great action adventure cartoon being a marketing product. And in earlier episodes, we've talked about the influence of, of advertising as being the real content and, and the other stuff's just a bonus. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that way at all. I was just struck with wonder and I wanted a decoder ring right. from PF flyers. And interestingly enough, because I'm, I'm, you know, really working hard on this textbook thing. One of the magical items that I ordered for myself is a kind of token totem magical sigil sort of thing. I got myself a decoder ring. I'm wearing mm. it now, you know? So I, under, I, I understand that 
that sense of how that worked in your young mind and how, why the turtles, you know, mm-hmm. were so Im- important there. Two things I want to ask you about then. Did your age have something really essential to do with your attachment to the turtles? Because there were a lot of other people who were interested in it. I mean, I remember, I, you know, I was a lot older than I, and I got into them. I thought it was mm-hmm. a, a really interesting, fun series, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and who were they vying for in your young pantheon of, uh, let's call them magical figures rather than gods, but who, who, what other magical beings were they contesting against for your loyalty and devotion? Yes. So... <clears throat> that, those are great questions. Um, as far as who they, what was the first one again? The second one is so good. What what was the first part of that question again? Okay. Um, do you think that your devotion was a factor of your? Oh, I mean, yes. obviously it right. was a factor, right. but yes. But I guess I'm asking: is it is it the fundamental factor? Right, right, right. I think it. I think it was to the extent that I was hooked into them. I think it ties directly into the second part of of the question. I think when you are that young, you are fundamentally still connected to the world of dreams. I think that when you look into uh, phenomena such as past life regressions, uh, children tend to stop uh, remembering whether you think that's true or not, they tend to stop remembering their past lives once they get past about the age of four. Sometimes they make it all the way to seven, but past four, they they tend to forget that. And I think it has a lot to do with um, with the connection to to dreams. You know, there's a when it when an infant is born, like Gus is born now, you want to make sure that they're not sleeping too soundly uh, because they they might you know. It, it might it could be fatal, you know, um, mm-hmm. because they're so connected to that world of dreams that they can forget to stop breathing. If you think about it in a mythic imaginary sense, it's almost like that dream world is so the pull of it is so strong it might be calling them back for them to never return, right? Um, so I think that that the children in that way are primed for these sort of strange creatures and godlike figures to to really take up, a sense of reality in their life. I mean, if you get into, if I were to get into something like the Ninja Turtles now, I would be understanding it as a story with maybe some cool pictures, uh, a way to kill about an hour. But for a child, they're just as real, right? And that gets into who they're competing with. So at that time, my family was very religious. So they would be competing uh, with all the figures of sort of the Christian pantheon, namely Jesus and Satan right? Those two figures were loomed very large, and we didn't get a whole lot in the way of a a folkloric upbringing because of that. All of our folklore had to do very specifically with with Bible stories. Uh, They were, if there was another pop, pop culture figure that the turtles were in competition with, it would probably be Garfield the Cat, I really, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed Garfield the cat, and we had several of the Garfield holiday specials recorded along with um, 
the California Raisins on VHS tapes. So Garfield, the California Raisins, the Ninja Turtles, Jesus, and Satan are all kind of in there vying for my, for my attention. Well, you know, I think that's a beautiful way to describe what, what a lot of people believe postmodernism to be. I mean, postmodernism really began as, a, as, a, as an architectural style. But when that moved into popular culture as a postmodern meme, it sort of meant this kind of syncretic. I, I love that mm-hmm. word. I'm not sure all listeners are, are aware of it, but uh, S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-C. Uh, it is a cultural psychological uh, mechanism of integrating very different kinds of influences in a religious, uh, magical sort of sense. Uh, and a good example might be of people... Um, say, in the New World, in in Haiti or South America, integrating Catholic saints into West African religious frameworks, which is exactly what happens in voodoo or voodoo. But I think we all do that. And I I think it's it's kind of a, a way of looking at your pantheon of, you know, mythical figures, private magical figures, and, of course, the beauty is that they're not private. They would have been means of sharing that with other people. Um, I don't know if you, like, when I was, I, I didn't have a lunchbox. I became very big on lunchboxes later. Um, but they were branded, you know, with based on TV shows. And yep. so you mm-hmm. had a, a cool lunchbox and you had a thermos. Yep. And it was a way of... of uh, brand identity for, for kids that was very cheap and affordable. Mm-hmm. But you could see if someone was a rat patrol guy or, you know, someone was... Uh, Power Rangers uh, for us, yeah. Yeah, yeah, all that kind of thing. And so some of that same raises some really interesting questions for me because I see some genuine magic in that. I see some also some innocent childhood wonder and yet I also see this manufactured, uh, marketed, uh, not quite corrupt, but certainly uh, secular angle to it. How do you peel that apart in your life? This, this sense of the childhood wonder and a genuine enchantment and magic. Mm-hmm. And then this other side. I mean, is it simply a matter of being... When we're children, we're just not noticing that. I think so, Um, yeah. I think so. I think that if you use the example of the McDonald's cup, when you're a child, um, you're at McDonald's, and McDonald's tastes great. Uh, Lots of salt, lots of sugar. And you look at your McDonald's cup, and it has a Ninja Turtle on it. And you are kind of seeing almost the way, you know, a schizophrenic might see their imaginary friend they're popping up in front of you in this place, and it somehow makes the cup that much cooler. And I think that that is a function of not understanding that the person who served you that cup is working for something called minimum wage, right? And you're not understanding, <laughs> and you're not understanding that the McDonald's Corporation, you know, one of the largest uh, landowning companies in the entire world. That's important for people to know. It's actually not a fast food chain. It is a, it's a real estate company that licenses. Yes, it is. Um, yes. Um, so anyway, so you don't know 
all of the horrible things that go into getting that turtle on your cup. So all you see is I have a cup that is full of Dr. Pepper and it's got my guy on it, right? You're seeing um, your internal world represented to you on your utensils, on your television, in the books that you read, and it's it's a feedback loop of an imagination, sort of an an, an an imaginary community in a sense. You know, I mean, I don't I don't want to overstate it necessarily because it's not quite correct in my experience, at least to to say that the Ninja Turtles or the Power Rangers or you know Indiana Jones, who became a sort of father-like figure to me a little bit later, um, that I that I actually believed that those were my my parents or or my friends right but then the question would be does a does a devout christian think of of god as you know his actual biological father right uh, no probably not but there's there's a, a representation there that i think is at play so to answer your question it, i think it comes completely from naivete when it comes to the branding aspect of it but um to be a child and to be surrounded by uh, an aesthetic world that you find appealing uh is is sort of wonderful it's kind of wondrous you know especially if it's supplemented uh with the opposite of that right if the television is turned off and the mcdonald cups are put away and you're forced to you know do your half of the work to, to, to fill in the gaps of the story and play with your friends and role play and make up more of the, um, you know, of the canon of the, of the myth, right? That's a, that's a huge, the participatory aspect of it is really important. I, th I think where it gets a little dangerous is when that, that sort of feeling becomes corrupted as people turn into adults who can't let those things go and sort of as a way to hold on to the that way that they felt when they were a child they instead begin to latch on to the predatory capitalist production of the of totems right um i'll leave it there i think but what do you what do you think about people who you know without just saying oh they're sad right like what do you think about you know people in their 30s who collect funko pops and watch you know marvel movies and things like that well it's interesting i you know th there's some really complex rich uh possible whole topics that that have just emerged in the last couple of minutes one answer that uh complicates my reaction to that kind of fandom and that sort of uh hoarding of of these uh well actually there are several problems i'm looking at a whole bunch of miniature army men surrounding <laughs> a, an african sculpture uh -huh. right now uh so i i need to be a little bit careful uh what i say uh i don't normally think about them moving um yeah. but i do keep them oriented I, around it's my favorite uh small sculpture it's about a a foot high, um, made by uh, a friend in Ghana who's a really beautiful sculptor. But there is a mixture of that kind of of, of magic and and weird uh, 
pop culture thing in, in terms of the little mini, you know, army men. Um, and they're classic mini army men, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're the real thing. Um, recently I, uh, I got invited to this, uh, to join this ephemera society. Uh, and these are amateur historians and collectors who are really experts in an enormous range of, of popular culture, disposable items from the past. But they're really serious uh, experts in terms of the artistry, of the, the, the printing processes, and the whole technical side. And a lot of the things that, I mean, I thought I knew some, you know, some stuff, and I, I know more than, than a few people maybe, but they have really taught me a lot about some interesting stuff that I don't think any academic historians that I know of, um, they're really, really great amateur um, explorers of, of popular culture and documentarians. So I do appreciate that you know, what they're doing, they're, they're correspondingly eccentric. I mean, I think it would be a great documentary film to, to go to, you know, a live convention of theirs because I think they'd be pretty weird. I've been to some comic book conventions that, that really did concern me in terms Yeah, those are you fun. Know, I mean, <laughs> you know, you, there's a real mix of people there. I mean, that, that, and also there's a very consistent sociology there. Um, but I say bless those people's hearts. Right. Uh, to me, it's not so much the problem of people who are, are really collecting and are, are fans and kind of experts in the collection thing. And also, let's not forget that um, you can make a lot of money, you know, baseball sure. cards, comic books. Uh, it's as a legitimate yeah. form of, of trading as, as anything. So... I mean, it, there's something in that. And if that brings mm-hmm. people happiness on multiple levels, they like the knowledge, they like the exchange. That's often, I think, a source of community. That's mm-hmm. certainly what these ephemera people are. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're subdivided into multitudes of, of groups. I mean, there are people who do movie posters. There are people who only do the little lobby cards. You know, yeah. it's very, very segmented. And it appeals to that kind of mind. And... Uh, it's, it's a mixture of people from all walks of life. Some of them are, are very, very, you know, down to earth. And some of them are very wealthy. Some of them are educated. Some are not. It's a kind of an interesting meeting ground, which is maybe, a, you know, what popular culture, <laughs> you know, is should be. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm concerned about is people who really haven't grown up. Right. Um, and right. it goes back to our concern about lack of, of milestones culturally accepted rituals, rites, rites of passage, initiation rites, all of that kind of thing. I think there's a problem there where they're kind of adult in the sense that we would talk about insects. They've reached the adult stage, but not really the adult psychological uh, stage, perhaps. And I wonder if that is in part what celebrity culture is yeah yeah that maybe these physical people who or they they appear to be physical i mean is kim kardashian real or it, she could be f- completely computer generated as far as i'm concerned could be um you know I, I i i would not swear on my life 
that that's a real person, um, you know, yeah. Anna, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, to go to flashback just for a moment to, uh, to, Ch- to Chubby Checker, I, mean, I mentioned him last episode, you know, there was a whole period in early rock and roll when, you know, people were on tour buses, you know, going around to Cleveland or Akron, you know, or stuff, but they would have impersonators, you know, yeah, there'd right. be Chubby would be in three different cities and not because he was on TV, he'd be mm-hmm. live on stage, but only one real chubby, you know? Yeah, right. So there's a lot of this. Um, and just that made me think of one thing, which I, I've just reread is Walter Benjamin's essay on the image or photography in the age of, of mechanical reproduction, art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend that. It's, it's a great it, essay, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's something that we need to kind of uh, touch base with all the time because I, I think the mechanical reproduction idea of imagery and little artifacts so that magical totems could now go out in, in cereal boxes. Um, I wonder if that isn't the hook of what these human, apparently human celebrities are. They're really uh, Cracker Jacks prizes. Yeah, you know? yeah, no, that's great. I was going to say that I feel like what you're talking about in particular, the the change happened on May 21st of 1992. And what happened that day was on a channel called MTV, a television show called The Real World premiered. And The Real World was about eight people who live in a house together um, and I believe at this point it was largely unscripted. Now, in 2021, there is an entire cast of writers in Hollywood whose major uh, focus and how they get hired is that they're in they're writers for something called unscripted television, which is bizarre if you think about it. But the real world, I think, really began to sort of put eight schlubs together, completely unremarkable people, you know, no offense to them, of course, right? Together in a right. house to just see them interact. And then from there, we had Survivor, I remember was a big phenomenon at the time. Yes. And there's a lot to say about the kind of return to nature and having to survive on a desert island and, and all this kind of stuff, not, not showering, not bathing, um, you had Big Brother, which what a, I mean, it's called Big Brother. Do I need to say right. more about that? I mean, right. so I think that all of these shows, these early ones that really captured the imagination of Americans in particular, they all had these subtexts about uh, anxieties and things that were going on subconsciously in, in people who were alive in the, in the, in the aughts and the nineties. Right. But it was the you know, it was the format, the format of, you know, the talking head of, you know, of being able to see a scene play out between real people and then have everybody give their color commentary over it that really gripped the the nation. And now now you have people. Here's a good example. Here's a good example. It's the, it's a show called RuPaul's Drag Race. Have you seen this this program? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. So it's, Rios loves it. My wife loves it. So I've seen it uh, in that way that you do when your partner really enjoys something. I kind of know who the major players are. I I get what's going on. I get what's, I get what's, you want me to be honest for a second here? I'm, 
it it's a lot of fun, but the show gives me panic attacks because all of the colors are hot pink and everybody is so over the top and sort of mugging for the camera. And I get this. I used to be terrified of Harlequins. My grandmother had Harlequin dolls in her um, in her house and they used to scare the bejesus out of me. And so watching uh, drag queens get into their drag where they're in that halfway stage, it 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 creates a fear that is so deep inside of me that my heart starts pounding and I have to turn on, you know, hardcore four on the floor dance music and go do the dishes to sort of block out the sensory overload that is RuPaul's Drag Race. But that's not my point. My point is this. Um, That show premiered about 10 years ago and there are now uh, queens on the show, right, who grew up, who were, you know, eight or nine years old when the show premiered. And so the show uh, helped them figure out who they were as far as their sexuality goes, right? They, 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 a lot of them say, you know, I learned that it was okay to be a gay man by watching RuPaul's Drag Race. But what's so fascinating is that their conception of what it means to be a gay man and a drag queen, right, has now... It's now like a facsimile of that first season of RuPaul's Drag Race, right? So you begin to have copies of copies of copies of copies to the point where now people who are winning this competition and winning all this money um, were literally raised on the program. And I think there's something really, uh, broadly speaking, going outside the purview of this one television show. That happened to our entire culture, didn't it? Yeah, I think that's that's a good you know analogy. It's sort of a hologram for the bigger picture. Yeah, I think that's actually that's totally right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the the reproductive you know sense of imagery and and but with each sort of level, there's a degeneration. There's a loss of fidelity. Yeah, there, you know, and that's that's what happens with any signal. You know, um, I mean, when when TV commercials started to be filmed, they were at a very high. They were filmed. You know, and and that was really important because the concern was by the time they get down to a television set in Grand Rapids, Michigan, you know, who knows what it's going to look like. It's going to look like, you know, a blizzard. You know, we've got to make it really, really good because it's just a step down process from there, which ties back in with our theme about, you know, celebrities began as, as godlike divinity figures and then eventually get down to TikTok influencers. So, but, but now here's a question. Why is that process degenerative? In the sense, I don't mean morally degenerative, although I personally might feel that way. Uh, it's certainly commercially degenerative. We, we've, we get to a very yeah. crass commercial sort of level. Uh-huh. But why is that? And is, is, is that, in fact, fair? Is there any example yeah. where we have actually gone the other way? I don't know. And about can you this, go the other way? I don't know about that. But I think the start of the answer to the first part of your question would require us to return to our poor, neglected friend, Rene Girard, right? <laughs> and, and Girard's concept of mimetic desire. Um, so... Loosely speaking, there are whole books written about this, and I encourage people to read them because I feel that they're very relevant in in our time. But 
the idea of a mimetic desire is the concept that human beings want things because other human beings want them, loosely speaking. Is that fair? Would you say I have that mostly okay? Uh, mostly okay. I, I think people, I mean, I think there's more to the idea of mimesis than that. I think that mimesis is about the magic of representation. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of uh, artistic control taken. I mean, we, we have... Uh, an extension of that in terms of mime and, and mimetic as being sort of reproduction and, and, and similarity. There is that. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a, there's a kind of magic element into it that of, of being able to contain something. So that you, supposing I have like this really cool thing in my hand and, you know, we're kids out on a playground. It isn't just because it's mine that you want it you actually see some significance so we share some sort of point of view there mm. um and i think that's an important thing it, it it isn't just well i've got it and you don't see any value in it but you want it because i've got it you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is where we move to i think in so many facets of society and culture you know, people just want something because someone else has it. Yeah, um, yeah. So there yeah. is a shared field of value, is what I'm saying. Yeah, shared shared field of value is the direction that I'm coming at it from. And I again, I encourage people to read this. I'm appreciative that you uh, kind of flesh that out because you know I don't want to give anybody misinformation here. But if we if we go off the idea of a shared system of value, <clears throat> you have to begin to wonder uh, what what shapes the values in the first place, which in the case of television is obviously selling ad space as we've gone over in previous episodes. So you begin to have uh, people who act in a certain way so as to uh, make themselves stand out to make good television, right? It's a, it's a two-way street. They make good television and they reap the rewards by getting further ad deals, further appearances on more television, et cetera, et cetera. And then the next generation who sees these people who are in the limelight and who are receiving all this material wealth and attention, things that maybe they didn't get in their own life, believe, well, the way that I get that is by emulating the person that I'm seeing on the screen. So it begins in that same way that I was talking about with Drag Race. It begins to be this kind of copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Yes, And the issue issue is, the issue is, is that we don't know if, well, we do know this, I think, but we can't be sure that the thing that these people want that they think is going to be fulfilling to them and thus fulfilling to a healthy community and society are actually things that they want. I think if you drill down into people and ask them what they really want at their heart, I think you might find a significant amount of people who, who frankly don't know, who, who know what they want based on what they've seen and not what they want in a kind of natural sort of intrinsic human way, right? I mean, how many people do you think would say, what do you really want? How many people do you think would say to live in the woods, you know, and hunt for my food and, uh, you know, develop community with a small group of maybe a dozen people? Maybe not many, unless there was a camera crew around and it was called Survivor, right? Mm, um, mm. So to the second part of the question, I don't, 
I don't know if there's a way out of it unless, you know, there are some interesting technological advances that are coming down the pipeline that are sort of designed, it's called, you know, it's web 3.0 type stuff, you know, that are designed to get people into smaller communities in a more decentralized um, internet. Uh, I know of a lot of people who are getting interested in practices such as, you know, sending out newsletters by snail mail, which might not seem related to the things that we're talking about here, but I think are the sort of beginnings of us being able to understand what we're looking for when we're looking for community rather than uh, some kind of degraded fac facsimile of, of things that we've seen on a TV screen going on how many generations now? Five? Six? Mm, yeah. You know, it's interesting about, but I, I think things like snail mail and flyers and all of those things, you know, are going to come back, not that they ever necessarily, you know, disappeared totally. It, it made me think of it. Uh, um, there's a work, uh, I, I passed on it from an editorial point of view because I didn't think I really had enough value to add to it. But I, uh, I hope it goes ahead because it's an interesting work of, of communications theory and, and, and cultural studies. Um, the premise is that the idea of going viral, you know, when that phrase first sort of, and I think it's interesting how it survived, you know, given the, the mm -hmm. pandemic, the real virus, but the idea was kind of a good thing that it meant something, a meme, a story, you know, a piece of news suddenly blew up across the internet and everybody knew all at once. It was sort of simultaneous, Mm -hmm. You know, it was mm -hmm. it was the uh, a kind of fulfillment of Marshall McLuhan's uh, some of his thoughts about the simultaneity you know, of of consciousness. But what the uh, the author of this, who is uh, an information scientist and a sociologist, was was trying to track was is there some sort of algorithm about how fast something slips out of consciousness and memory mm. and attention mm. it, as a factor of the speed at which it emerged. There has to be. Uh, you know, you'd think so, right? The faster mm -hmm. a rumor gets around, the quicker it's neutralized and becomes either fact and accepted and it's no longer rumor, or it just gets completely forgotten, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, the person who becomes... Remember that... I was just thinking of the, the red sweater guy uh, and I couldn't remember what he was famous from at, for, you know, and he was somebody in one of the presidential debates and mm -hmm. who got a little bit of extra or um, who was it at the Super Bowl? The Sharks, remember? Was it, oh, is yes, it Katy, the Perry? Katy Perry and the dancing sharks? I remember them with Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg was one yeah. of the sharks. Yeah. No, really? Yeah. Snoop Dogg was in one of those shark costumes. <laughs> No, I didn't know that. See, that's a great urban legend, David. I don't know mm -hmm. if I buy that. Well, was he the one doing not sort of playing along? I believe uh, so. I think, yeah. <laughs> no, I haven't heard that. We're gonna have to. We're, I'll go we're to gonna the have to. Mark I'll go to the Google that. right now. Hold on. Snoop okay, Dog. I don't know if that was Shark right, Charles. Yeah. But that would kind of. Um, oh yeah! Right here. Right here, it says uh, Snoop Dogg. Now, this is Snoop Dogg saying this, okay? This is February 1st, 2015. On Twitter, Snoop Dogg tweeted, if you were wondering, that was me in the shark costume. Two exclamation points. 
Oh, I don't. I'm not going to believe Snoop. I love Snoop so much, but I'm not. I think that's wonderful. I think that's exactly the kind of subversive thing that he would do. And why he's one of my favorite celebrities. Mm -hmm. I think he is a real star. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, just let me. This is a good way to sort of get back to the difference between real celebrity and not. the Melbourne Cup is the biggest sporting event in the Southern Hemisphere. It's, it's much bigger than the Kentucky Derby, really. It's, it's serious, serious business. And one year, there had been uh, some sort of equine disease that had really limited the number of horses that could enter the country. And the whole thing was, it was, it was terrible. And an enormous amount of money was going to be lost. The mood was grim. It's in November, which is a rough time of year in Melbourne. It can be very rainy and cold. And everything was was just looking just terrible. Uh, well, Snoop happened to be in town for concerts and events and been doing media rounds. And uh, I got invited uh, through advertising stuff to the Emirates tent um, you know, these, what would have been a really, well, they're always really lavish and cool, but this year it was really, really just, it was glum. And we're talking five-star catering, beautiful people in really expensive clothes. And the mood was still down until, until Snoop and his entourage arrived. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, it was a palpable shift like you wouldn't believe. Everything energized. It was like some amazing drug just pumped straight into this rainy, cloudy, miserable setting where people were thinking the best horses aren't here, the big money's not being bet. And Snoop just brought the whole party. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. And anybody who doesn't believe in charisma um, would have changed their minds around that. Right, you know? right, right. Well, I so think that that's... A, that's real stardom. That's real celebrity. That's yeah, what, you know. Yeah, it goes back to the to the Nick Cave example, that there's there's something going on there. And I think that the the line that we're trying to draw is between people who have... Because, you know, Snoop Dogg started off as a feature on a Dr. Dre song, something like 30 years ago, right? So on Dr. Dre's uh, The Chronic album, he had a few songs with Snoop Dogg, and from there he got his own record. And over time, in a way, I sort of feel like I've grown up with this guy, because he was something like 16 or 17 when he first appeared on that track. And through sort of a sheer force of will in being this uh, enigmatic, interesting, smooth, like his voice is so unique, right? Um, he kind of forced his way into uh, the culture to become this this kind of force. And there's a difference between that kind of power, whatever that is, and, <clears throat> again, people who are sort of famous in a very brief way. Uh, I know that you mentioned TikTok, right? For, for doing something that other people have been doing, right? And I, I don't know, the more I think about it, it's maybe not that they that these people who become famous, I don't know if they're charisma less 
but they certainly seem to be, and it was indicated in the in that Forbes article about how TikTok sort of chooses uh, who becomes a star and who doesn't. They they seem to be a bit more hand selected based on their ability to mimic what is popular in order to trade that in for their 15 minutes of fame, 10 minutes of fame. And somebody like Snoop Dogg, who, as far as I know, he could probably do whatever he wants and will be in the cultural eye to some degree or the other until he passes away. I'd agree with that. And I think there are very few people uh, who you could say that of now. Yeah. You know, there there are some... Uh, I, I, I want to um, say that I, I think I didn't treat Cher very fairly in the last episode. And that, that in, in, in fact, I, I mean, I really do think a lot of her, I certainly think a lot of her in a couple of her movie roles, and I've never had a problem necessarily with her as a, as a musician. She's certainly, you know, a, an entertainer uh, royalty. And um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, that it, it, I, I should have been more respectful there because I, I, I feel a sense of loss that a generation, maybe the last generation of people who could really, we could say, were true stars in that, that you know, deeper, bigger, larger-than-life sense, mm-hmm. I, I don't see those new people emerging. But the, the question is, would younger people disagree with that? Or, or are we right in saying, no, these TikTok people are going to be around for like two seconds, and very few of them. Are, are going to be remembered at all, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, uh, yeah, so it's, it goes down to the level of how you feel when you look at these things. TikTok is new, but the phenomenon that we're talking about isn't. There have been stars and boy bands and girl bands that have been a part of this churning process there at this point there have been probably hundreds of millions of hours of reality television that's been through this process and people have done their best to act as wild and crazy as they possibly can and they were sort of lost to the you know to the fickle seas of time right so i think that it it's not I don't think it's overly judgmental to be able to look at somebody who's on TikTok and who is doing a sort of, you know, 15 second dance with a big white smile plastered on their face and say to yourself, you know, this just doesn't have any staying power. They're not creating anything. They're not they're not making anything. Maybe that has something to do with it. The 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 creative generative aspect of these people. Well, that I think is a certain uh well that there's a, there's no question about it. The fact that they're they're actors, you know, more than uh, they're interpretive artists, and in some, in certain ways, they're just simply being posed. They're models rather than you know even actors. Uh, I shouldn't say that even actors. I really admire actors. They're 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 really they're uh, they're crackerjacks prizes that that live and breathe. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, you know, I just had a strange flash on one of the. The, the weirdest reviews that anyone could read, and it, it's very possible to, uh, to track this down. Graham Greene, who uh, the British writer, I, I think he's just, I think he's just one of the most amazing prose stylists of all time. I agree. Uh, 
he got into a lot of, of trouble because he wrote a review of a movie that featured uh, a maturing Shirley Temple. Mm-hmm. And uh, for people who, you know, Shirley Temple was just so far in the past, you know, for me, but she, there was a lot of, of her in on Sunday afternoons, rainy afternoons when you couldn't get out. There'd be some old, you know, bit of Shirley Temple and you'd think, really? I mean, mm-hmm. did people really watch that? But she was an enormous, enormous celebrity. And we really can't yeah, wind up celebrity without mentioning her. She was that big. And I mean, maybe the biggest child star, certainly one of the biggest um, of all time. But in this review, Graham Greene talks, I think he uses the word rump, her shapely rump. Oh, dear. Um, yeah. And he he got really just blasted for, you know, that kind of. Uh, but I mean, what he was really saying is, is here is a, a, a childhood figure a megastar who is now transitioning to a mature age female actor. And it's just not working. You know, it's just not working. And she looks uncomfortable. She's attractive, but she doesn't really have the presence. Everything's just not going, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it, it didn't work. Uh, and that must be, a t- you know, we could do a whole thing on childhood stars. I mean, think of the, the, the amazing stories of people who just, you know, came to really terrible ends. And some people, you know, you think of Ron Howard, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He, he, he's weathered it really well. Um, yeah. Not many have. So right. It, right. It, it's, but I, I think that this surviving the reproducing side of it, being able to have your image reproduced, circulated, it's mm-hmm. kind of like money that never gets old, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, you think about a really dog-eared old dollar bill and you think, "Ugh." Yeah. You know? Yeah. You don't want to hold that, you know? You think, "Where is this bin?" It it just it has the same value as a nice crisp new bill, but ugh, you know? And I mm-hmm. I wonder if 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 that's one of the the horrors that celebrities face. And we know you know, so much of the life is tragedy. There have been so many drug and alcohol problems, so many suicides, so much, you know, it hasn't brought them dreams and, and wishes come true. Not for a lot of them. No, and I think it comes down to the idea of are you using the tool or is the tool using you? So yeah, stardom and celebrity can be a great catalyst for wealth acquisition and wealth acquisition can be a fantastic way to create and shape your life however you want. For all the stories of people who were chewed up and spit out by the system, there are also some great stories of people who have sort of taken their ball and gone home and and learned how to live out sort of the rest of their lives off of the money they were able to make during their, their brief stints as stars, right? Like, I don't think Steve Martin makes any public appearances anymore. Right. He, mm. he, he did his thing and now he's now he's good. So he used the tools to his advantage and now he's just living. But it becomes very hard depending on what an individual's goal is with their relationship to 
celebrity, right? Is is the being the celebrity in and of itself the appeal, or is it a means to an end? Well, you know, one one thing that that crosses my mind, uh, you know, there's been just uh, a whole st- a thing about Lucille Ball, uh, you know, a, a huge huge uh, female star. Uh, and a major executive, you know, one of the first women to really, you know, become an important executive figure within television. And I, I think that show business, and it's interesting that really so, so much of, of celebrity that we're talking about is really show business related, isn't it? Um, as opposed to some other field, you know, political leadership or athletics or artistic sort of, it, it, it's popular entertainment, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably worth, you know, focusing on that and saying that that's kind of really what that means uh, in, in very connotative terms. I, I think what celebrity shows is that would be a great way to look at the challenges, the special challenges that women have faced, because I think it's pretty brutal. You know, um, Ida Lupino, who I loved as an actor and as a director, some of her film work I think is, is just outstanding. Um, Lucille Ball, Sarah Vaughn, my favorite uh, singer in the blues, jazz, idiom. I mean, these were women who really, they didn't get chewed up. They really worked the system. They fought back. Yeah. But my Lord, they had to have been tough. Right. You know? Right. Right. I mean, wow. Yeah. Well, I think that... Um... I think that that's a good segue. If you didn't want to sort of continue along that track, I do have a thought about where we could maybe go next. What do you think? I think so. I think we've kind of, I, I think in a way, what, what, this is a, a kind of a cardigan sweater that we could unravel indefinitely. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think there's a whole world to talk about in terms of, the mysterious factor of, of endurance. We've talked about kind of the mystery factor of charisma. How does that be, how can that be maintained? And how do celebrities manage to retain their freshness when they're kind of owned in a sense by many people? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think of, as a photographer, I I'm always, wondering about why certain places in the world in a natural beauty sense, they seem to be able to survive thousands and thousands of photographs. And yet other places that are, that are still, you know, immense and grand and, and equally impressive kind of don't, you know, you arrive there in person for the first time and there's, there's an inevitable disappointment that many people report, even if it is their first time. Um, I, and I think that's a mysterious thing. So how people keep their currency, their freshness across, you know, millions of adoring fans and how other people just can't, uh, there, there's more to be said about that. I think there's more that listeners might have to say about the experience of their enjoyment, what they've gotten out of, of, of fandom, you know, in a psychological sense. Um, 
which goes back to you know to little David and and the in the turtles you know yeah, yeah. Uh, there there's a whole sort of thing to go but I think that we can pick that up in an anthropology sense as we roll along um, because we're really probably this is just one of many 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 doors into the whole question of of modernity and and popular culture so totally. I, I'm I'm feeling like We've kind of given this a good shot. This this series, so I'd be ready to hear about your uh, your thoughts on uh, on on the next round. Sure. So going back to shaking the hands with a ninja turtle and the dream, the mythic dream world of childhood, and its sort of denigration over time into this kind of ugly concept of fifteen minutes of fame and celebrity. But going back to establishing an actual pantheon of personal gods and monsters, I believe that doing so um, in a Charles Fordian sense of you know of incorporating things like damned facts and stories that may or may not be true, uh, but incorporating them nonetheless, in a sense re-enchanting our personal world is a huge step that is massively, massively important in today's world, right? So I would like our series uh, following this episode to begin to investigate conspiracy theories. Now, I can feel listeners sort of hackles are rising because this is such a hot button issue right now. Now, I'm not talking about what I would call uh, the ugly conspiracy theories, right? I'm, I don't, I'm not particularly interested at the moment, at least, in talking about you know, things like um, MKUltra or the Kennedy assassination, although those things could come up. I'm more interested in the ones that are sort of fun, that have to do with monsters, like the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot or the Chupacabra or UFOs. Yeah, aliens, or the right? Mothman prophecy. the Mothman pro- Oh, we've yeah, got to talk about yeah. John Keel. That's, that's a huge one. That could be an entire episode talking about that book. But, um, but I think that moving forward... We should begin to, with sort of open hearts, open minds, uh, not worrying too much about what's true or not, sort of investigate the mythic aspects of these stories and how they can be incorporated into our into our lives to, to, to make the world a little bit bigger, right? A little bit more, more fun to be in. Um, now, before we go, I don't know if listeners can hear, but there's Gus in the background. Um, you did <laughs> mention that you had uh, a story... Toward, at the top of the show, a story about something from space. So I'd like to yeah. I'd like to close on that if if you wouldn't mind. Okay, okay. This was uh, this is a real story, and I I was thinking about it again once this idea of of the trajectory, the the decaying orbit of these gods and divinities as the original celebrities into cultural heroes and leaders and then stars and then. Celebrities famous for fifteen minutes, then famous for five minutes, and then TikTok artists. I thought I was thinking about things falling out of the sky, and uh, I had a friend who uh, is a geological survey surveyor out in the, the heart of the central desert of Australia, massive vacant you know area. Australia is the same size as as America, but it's just it's very empty a lot of it. And uh, so he's out in the desert all the time, and he has a lot of survival skills. Uh, he's a pilot. He's an emergency mechanic. He's a paramedic. 
so in addition to what you know he does for a living, he, he's often required to do emergency rescue things. Well, he was called out to deal with a very, very serious collision uh, that involved two very different groups of people, multiple vehicles, but two groups of people out in the middle of absolute nowhere. And what the, they were racing in a kind of treasure hunt way to get to the wreckage of a piece of satellite that had crashed in the central red desert of Australia, okay? So 47 degrees Fahrenheit or about 110 degrees, sorry, 47 degrees centigrade, 115, whatever, Fahrenheit. Two groups of people, you know, it's like it's a mad, mad, mad world sort of scenario of, of this race to get the this totemic bit of wreckage from the sky, you know? And so he goes out and, and a couple of people were very seriously hurt and he's, he's trying to do the best he can in a triage sense. You know, and he says to them, look around you. And they go, yo, yo. And he said, you know, this is one of the greatest meteor impact areas in the world. You know, stuff from millions of miles away have crashed here. You know, amazing bits of minerals from other other worlds, maybe other gal. You know, who knows? Who knows how long these mysterious travelers of of meteorites have been? You know, in heading towards Earth, and yet here are these people nearly killing themselves to get some pieces of wrecked metal that aren't even really that old. And I thought, you know, that is to me a really good analogy, metaphor, for what celebrity has become. And, you know, how we, the souvenirs that we want, you know, they're, they're kind of, and, and yet you can see a kind of noble hope in those people. They, I, I can get it. I wouldn't mind a piece of satellite in my office right now. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd want to kill myself for it. But I, I can see that there would be more value in, you know, a bit of iron or pyrite, meteorite, you know, mm-hmm. that was millions of years old. I, that would be cooler to me. And I think that that sense of the, the what's falling out of the sky is sadly less and less interesting, you know, than it used to be. <laughs> and- so that's that's my story. I think that's a metaphor to think about what we mean by... You know, because we do call these people stars, don't we? And I think it's worth talking about shooting stars then. And I think a shooting star is more interesting than uh, a car wreck falling out of, you know, out of the clouds. <laughs>